0: Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasoning, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins have been forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk. But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, take up your stretcher and go home. And at once he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and he went home glorifying God. Now notice this little touch of Luke in in verse 26, and they were all seized with astonishment, and began glorifying God, and they were filled with fear, saying, "We have rece- we have seen, remarkable things today." Amen. Uh. <laughs> Um, we've had this unusual dry spell and yesterday morning I couldn't sleep and I got up early and went to a prayer meeting and one of the brethren there prayed for all of the people who had complained about the weather uh, earlier this summer when it was cold and rainy every day (laughs) and he thinks they've changed their prayer and uh, I remember it used to get like this out in Texas the standard story used to be that it uh, someone asked a man, he said, doesn't it ever rain around here? This was at uh, the little town where I preached, which was actually named Happy, H-A-P-P-Y. I preached at the Happy Presbyterian Church, And <laughs> unusually good name. Anyway, uh, someone said, doesn't it ever rain around here? In one of our uh, standard jokes used to be that one of the ranchers said yeah it rained over at Amarillo about six weeks ago but I couldn't get off to go see it <laughs> and we're beginning to feel that way here. Now then uh, uh, the, the lesson today the church with a hole in the roof by the way we like to have a hole in this roof last week someone ran into the wall out here and knocked off a few tiles. Uh, it's a good lesson because it tells us of the determination of some friends to bring their friend to Jesus. Mission week, evangelism week, any need of any friend that we have ought to be something for which we pray that God will enable us to bring our friends to Jesus. The passage of scripture which has been read to you, is uh, that miracle is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It uh, is what we call the synoptics. You see them with the same, uh, you see the same scene. Each one adds just a little bit of a different touch to it. And Julia Scott and I were talking just before church about form criticism, uh, which is a uh, Rudolf Bultmann introduced to us in a remarkable way. Uh, He had a hard time accepting the miracles in the Bible. They were an embarrassment to him, the miracles of Jesus, as they have been to a lot of other people. And so, in order to explain them, he said that you had to get in back of the miracles, sort of psychologize why the miracles should have been there. And he rationalized that the early church wanted to justify the teaching of the forgiveness of sins, and so it invented... Uh, this miracle and uh, used it for that purpose and uh, Dr. Scott said that he was uh, that uh, Dr. Merrill Tinney up at Wheaton was at a New Testament scholarship meeting in Harvard University and uh, when someone asked him what he thought of Bultmann's theory he said Bultmann is the only man I know who throws dust in the air and then complains because he cannot see clearly Uh, what we are meant to see, literary criticism is quite justifiable. That's where you seek to find the best form of the text, where you want exactly the form of the text that came down as best you can get it. Then when you have settled on that text of scripture, you have God's word. And if a miracle is purported, what we must realize that what we deal with here is a miracle, and it is a miracle of the grace of God. And uh, one New Testament scholar has illustrated the need for this by a telling of the writing of the music uh, to George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. George Gershwin was an alcoholic. He was commissioned to write that in 1924. It was played on February the 12th, 1924 in New York. His uh, commission to write it had uh, come about and then he had gone on to one of his bouts with alcoholism and it was very difficult for them to get him sober enough to complete the composition for the opening of that music hall. George uh, Whiteman was the um, orchestra leader. Other friends worked on him and finally he did get settled and did get the piece written. Literary music critics at that time panned it, that is, they put it down. They said it was uh, premature, that it was not really a great piece of music. Now the whole trend is turned, and many people regard it as a, a very remarkable piece of music, which has received many accolades. Well, now, the reason I've told you that is that if you were a form critic, you would have gone back and tried to study what the composition of the committee was, what the architecture of the music hall might have been. Uh, That would have been it. And then you would have listened to the piece of music. But here, what we want to do is to see the miracle which Jesus does and then learn the message which he seeks to teach as a result of that miracle which is performed. We do not separate his words from his deeds. They go together here. And so if you follow the Gospel of Luke in the beginning of it, Luke tells us that he researched carefully what he had to say, that he went back to uh, original sources, to people who had seen these things take place, And then he brings us to this story, which we have this morning, which is an act uh, of the Son of God himself in performing a miracle. We are told that um, scribes and Pharisees had come from as far away as Jerusalem, which, which would be about 80 miles, to Capernaum to hear and to see Jesus. Jesus had actually touched a man with leprosy and had healed him. And so his fame as a healer had gone out. Now remember when he healed that leper, he also told him to go to the temple and to offer the sacrifice that should be offered according to Leviticus 14. The word about his teaching and his power had gone out, so these Pharisees, And teachers of the law have come from great distances to hear Jesus teach but they have come because they want to ensnare him not because they want to believe but because they want to criticize they are full of cynicism and doubt and they go a long way to listen to him and Jesus knows what they are thinking. Evidently the home in which this miracle occurred was a home of some wealth because we are told in in Luke's version that the roof was made out of tile and tile was introduced into this area by the uh, Romans and would have been very expensive. It uh, was probably not a mud thatched roof like the Jewish people would have normally had who were just ordinary uh, Jewish folk unless they were people who had come into a lot of wealth. It seems um, reasonable that it was a large home very much like some a good Bible teacher might come here and go into some home and there would be a large living room there and so the people would gather. Well people had heard about Jesus healing And uh, these doctors of the law have come out of a very ornery and mean motivation, simply to criticize him, simply to find fault with him, and to watch to see if he does something which is displeasing to their interpretation of the law. And then this astonishing thing takes place. There are some men, four in number, who bring on a stretcher a man who is paralyzed this always touches me almost to the point of tears because just about this time in july in 1974 on a very hot sultry day in the city of london having walked from museum to museum uh, with two of my boys who were much huskier in more energetic than I was. We'd started out the morning by seeing the changing of the guard at Buckingham Palace. We had gone to see museums of art. Uh, We had finally gone into Madame Tussauds Wax Museum. I remember in there, uh, our older son, who was quite an admirer of Sherlock Holmes, saw some representation of Sherlock Holmes in wax. And then when we came out onto the street, He also observed that we had walked out onto Baker Street, 221 Baker Street. That's Sherlock Holmes' house. He wanted to find it. I was tired. Uh, I was so tired I could have sat out on the curb and cried when they said, Let's let's go on. It's not going to be far. And so they dragged me on. And I went to find, There is no 221B. Don't look for it. Uh, There's a 221, but not a 221B. Anyway, we walked until I was very exhausted, and then we found some Turkish uh, restaurant and got a pizza. Uh, I found out that British food is not the greatest in the world, but you can't eat what the foreigners bring in. And uh, so we went in this place and got a pizza, and then we got in. It stays light long in the summertime. We didn't get in until about 12 o'clock. And we read the Scripture Union. By the way, those devotionals are available to you here in the church office. Uh, and we had had our prayers. When I tried to get up, I noticed that I had difficulty in, in standing up. And I started to fall. And uh, the two boys, like two mousetraps going off, jumped and grabbed me. And they said, what's wrong with you? And I said, nothing. My leg has gone to sleep. Uh, We'd been kneeling down to pray. And uh, one of them said, something's wrong with you, the one who is a young doctor now. And I noticed that my face began to sort of freeze a little bit. And then a pain in my arm and then uh, down my right leg began to become numb. Uh, We prayed about it and they tried to uh, help me to... Uh, thinking that it was just numbness from lack of circulation. Well, I told them to go on to sleep. I was tired, and they went to sleep, but I didn't sleep much. I remember reading all night about the Jerusalem Chamber and the uh, Westminster Abbey and something else waiting for daylight to come. And then I called uh, a friend of mine, a banker in uh, London, who uh, got in touch with a doctor, and the doctor called me, and by this time, uh, my right side had begun to be very, very numb. And uh, the doctor said, this is something neurological, and uh, you had better get to a hospital immediately. So I was taken to a hospital. I remember we went in the section that passes the coroner's office. I didn't like that. It said, autopsies are performed here. And uh, then we went into the place, and the uh, neurologist who looked at me had a little entourage of learners who were looking over his shoulder, and he scratched me and pinched me and stuck me, and we went through all of that. And then he said I would have to have a carotid angiogram where they place needles in your uh, carotid arteries and inject a dye, and then they put you to sleep for that over there. And I was glad they did when I looked around that operating room at all those different people from all over the world who were working on them. And uh, I remember uh, very well uh, how frightened I was when I was coming out of this uh, anesthesia. And uh, some doctor who was trying to awaken me in the uh, recovery room had brought in the two boys. And the doctor said those dreadful words, you have had a stroke. And when he said that, my eyes filled up with tears and uh, I was overcome with emotion. I thought a stroke? How could I have a stroke? I'm only 44 years old. Uh, you don't have a stroke. I didn't even have high blood pressure. And I couldn't figure this Uh, out but I knew that my leg did not respond to movement and I also knew that the numbness was there and I was very terrified. This poor man was paralyzed he could not move his legs he could not walk and in his extremity His friends knew that Jesus had performed miracles. And they wanted to get him to Jesus. They wanted to get him to Jesus desperately. And so they went to the house where they heard that Jesus was. And they were determined. There were crowds of people all around the house. No one could push through nor get in and then they saw a stairway going up the side, and they went up that stairway with their burden, four of them carrying this man on a stretcher. Somehow they unroofed the roof, they took the tiles apart. And they, you can imagine what it would have been like when they started lifting the tiles apart and dirt started falling down in the building, a little piece of tile hitting someone here, and people looking around and looking up at what was going on. You get all kind of interruptions when you're a preacher, and sometimes you have to preach right through a screaming baby or something else that takes place. But I've often wondered what I'd do if someone started tearing up the roof. But Jesus had an amazing uh, command of every situation. He wasn't upset. He didn't say, that's a very un thing to do. You're all too emotional. Uh, no, I think he was, uh, I, because there's a little irony in what he says later, I think there was some, uh, some sympathetic humor to what he saw. He saw that, that first man get a hole in that roof, and he could see that Jewish face looking down there trying to find out where he was. And then he was calling to his buddies, and they said, if we can get him down right here, he's right down there. And then they had to tear up a bunch of tile to get a man on a stretcher, and to take that first century elevator and let it all the way down with ropes uh, into the presence. Boy, when you get that determined to bring someone to Jesus, when Jesus saw their faith, that's what the scriptures say. When Jesus saw their faith, he was moved. He was moved. We were told earlier by Luke that the power of God was present to heal. The power of God was present to heal. And Jesus saw their faith. And it pleased him. He was happy at their determined faith. It moved him. It moved him. Now, the people, the scribes and the Pharisees who were there, did not like what Jesus was about to say. And uh, not finding any way to bring him down because of the crowd, they went up on the roof, they led him down through the tiles with his stretcher, right in the center in front of Jesus. And Jesus, seeing their faith, he said to them, and the word he uses is an affectionate term. Uh, It's something like son or child, really. Uh, Child, your sins are forgiven you. Well, if you look back up there at those four guys in the roof, they said, what's he talking about? We didn't come up here about sins. We wanted to get him healed. And the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, they are angry for another reason. They say, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They are absolutely right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? But what they do not understand and have not come to believe is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, with that authority. And that's what he demonstrates through this remarkable miracle that takes place here. For Jesus saw their faith, and he said to this man, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And Jesus, being aware that the scribes and the Pharisees had already been reasoning in their heart, about what he was doing, he says, and here's the irony, the little humor, I think, that existed. Jesus said, which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Well, if I said, your sins are forgiven you, who knows whether your sins are forgiven or not? But if I say your sins are forgiven you, and you are paralyzed, and you get up and walk out of here, someone will say strange things happened in church today. The presence and the power of God was there. Friday afternoon, I went to visit Whitaker English, uh, a member of our church for many, many years, and Whit is sick and unable to attend church and has a nurse there, and and I noticed over on his reading table there was a copy of the Saturday Evening Post and I thought it looked familiar face was there and it was Oral Roberts. And so Witt and I got into a conversation with his nurse and some other person that was present about Oral Roberts. And uh, I told, it had, by the way, an article about the medical doctors that were being graduated from Oral Roberts Medical School. And I th- I remembered that a couple months ago, a very distinguished uh, writer came here to Montreat to interview me about Oral Roberts. He came here because he is writing a, a book on Oral Roberts, and he is showing the transition that took place in Oral Roberts' way of thinking when he reasoned that the gift of healing through physicians was a legitimate work of God and that it was not just uh, uh, purely a matter for faith healers, so-called. And then he talked about the charismatic uh, movement and its acceptance among denominations, and about the contribution that he had made to that, and he asked me how I had come to know him. And I told him a story familiar to our congregation of one of the finest Presbyterian elders I know who is probably listening to this when it's broadcast on the radio, John Shelby. Johnny uh, ran a dry cleaning establishment, and I used to go to uh, visit Johnny to get my clothes pressed. He was not a Christian, neither he nor his wife, and um, so I took my suit in one day to get it pressed, and I flipped it over on the counter, and uh, I looked at Johnny, and he looked kind of sad, and I said, you look miserable, in my usual tactful manner, (laughs) and uh, Johnny said, I am miserable, and uh, I I had Psalm 34 open, and I said, well, here, here's my prescription, read this three times a day, take this three times a day, and I gave him that, well, usually when you give someone a tract, they don't always read it. Uh, and I gave him the whole book of Psalms. It was a little American Bible Society scripture portion of the book of Psalms. And and uh, I forgot about it. Well, one of our chief deacons told me, he said, there's some person putting a brand new $20 bill in the collection plate every Sunday night, and I can't figure out who it is. Uh, and I'd noticed Johnny had been coming to church every Sunday night. Didn't come on Sunday morning, came on Sunday night. Then finally he started coming on Sunday morning. And then he started coming to Sunday School. And uh, John Ellington, one of our missionaries, knows Johnny very well. And then uh, uh, one day there was a rap at my study door and Johnny came in. And Johnny had that little book of the Psalms that I had given him. And he said, do you have another one of these? And he held that thing up and I give you my word, it was worn to shreds. And it was just marked, marked all over. And I looked through it and I said, did you read this like this? And he said, yes. And I said, I will give you a whole Bible. (laughs) And so I gave him a Bible, and I gave him some of Dr. Gutsky's tapes, and he began to read that, and before long, Johnny was well on the road to uh, a deep knowledge of the Lord. Well, he, when I first had met him, he always had, back in his place where he pressed, he had pinups, nude pinups, and I said to him one day, you know, this place could stand some cleaning up. Next time I came, all of that junk was gone. Then Johnny began to grow in the faith. His whole life was transformed. He became a deacon. He was elected an elder. I think he was really the largest single contributor in our church. He gave far more than he could afford to give. I can remember once when he gave what I thought was a way too much money uh, in a check to the church. I said, Johnny, you can't afford to do this. And he said, I was going to buy a new car this year. And he said, I don't need a new car. I don't go anywhere anyway. He said, uh, I ought to give this uh, to the Lord. You said for us to go and pray about it. I prayed about it. And this is what I think the Lord wants me to give. Well, uh, then there came a day when I was out trying to make some pastoral calls, it was rainy, and uh, I looked for some familiar place to go into, so I turned into Johnny's dry cleaning shop. And I went in there and I thought I would get a little ego boost, so I said, Johnny, tell me how you got converted. And I was just waiting for him to say, well you came in this dry cleaning shop, you gave me the book of Psalms, you led me to the Lord, and then I was going to feel how wonderful I was as an evangelist. And so I sat back to drink all this praise in. And Johnny said, I was watching Oral Roberts on television. And I thought, oh, my soul, watching Oral Roberts. And, uh, and at least I didn't, I wasn't dumb enough to say, well, don't watch him. Because I knew what he had been before. And I wasn't going to get into that. And um, So, later, I met Oral Roberts in Berlin in 1966 and uh, people were walking away from him and I saw him get off an elevator and uh, I thought, who is that guy? I know him from somewhere. You know, you feel like you know these television people even when you don't. And uh, then I thought, that's Oral Roberts. And then I thought, I wonder if I ought to tell him about Johnny. And then I thought, well, I'm in a lot of trouble in our denomination anyway. I better stay away from old Robert. And uh, then uh, the it, it, I kind of prayed, Lord, should I speak to him or should I not speak to him? And, it, it, you know, I didn't get any audible readout on this, but it uh, it came back, why did you ask a dumb question like that? Go speak to anybody. You don't have to clear that with me. Go talk with him. And I went over and spoke to him, and we got to know each other, and I asked him how he became a Christian and here's where we come back to this passage of Scripture. He said, I was sick with tuberculosis and was dying. I did not seek healing. The healing of God sought me. I had an older brother who read in the paper that there was a little tent meeting of Pentecostals where people got healed. And he said that older brother was determined that I should go there. We didn't even own a car. But he said he borrowed a Model A Ford and they took me and lifted me and placed me in the back of that car and they drove me to the meeting and they took me in. And he said there was lots of singing and lots of praying and people laid their hands on me and prayed for me and he said God healed me. And then he said I became a Christian. Jesus looked at this man And he didn't say, he said, son, thy sins are forgiven you. There was evidently sin in his life as there is in all of our lives. He forgave his sins and then he told him to get up and to take the bed upon which he had been lying and to go home. And he took up that bed and he walked away. And that was a demonstration of the power of God to forgive his sins and the power of God to heal him. And Oral Roberts said to me, I am preaching the experience which I found myself. And so later, uh, he was introduced to the great circle of people who were there for that Congress on evangelism and many people came to uh, know him. And uh, that formed a friendship which has lasted down the years. And by the way, when I had that stroke in London, he was one of the people who called me on the telephone and who prayed for me and wanted to know if there was anything he could do for me. And down through the years when I've had troubles of one sort or another, he's called. Well, I don't know how you reckon friends, but those friends are, are good friends who help you when you are in need and who pray for you. These friends who bore this man to Jesus, demonstrated to Jesus a faith in the Lord Jesus that touched the Lord Jesus to heal the man that they had brought. And Jesus healed him. We sang two songs at the beginning of this worship. One of those, the first one that we sung, was written by Robert Robinson. It's come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. That man, Robert Robinson, was quite a roué. He was a debauchee. He was an evil, wicked, repulsive man who in his early 20s under the spellbinding preaching of George Whitfield, was converted to a faith in Jesus Christ. He was a very popular and gifted speaker himself as time went on. But he actually backslid away from his faith after he had written that hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. One day he was riding on a stagecoach. And this was when he was out of harmony with God and out of fellowship with him. And a woman, reading a little book of poetry, started reading. She said to this stranger on the stagecoach, let me read something to you. And she started reading, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Prone to wander, Lord I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And as she read those words, Robert Robinson burst into tears. And he said, I am the man who wrote that poem. And he came back. faith in Christ and he lived out a useful faithful ministry to Christ. John Newton, the libertine and the slaver who wrote amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He was so useful to God that when he was converted he was one of those people who could address Parliament as having been a former captain of a slave vessel himself, who knew what it was to see the abuse and mistreatment of slaves. But God had extended amazing grace to him and he had been converted when he was almost 40 years of age and later had gone into the ministry. You see the power of God to heal and you see the power of God to forgive, and you see it extended on in a medical school, in a university, through teaching and preaching, through hymns of faith, this is what happens when we are willing to pray for the presence and the power of God to be in our worship, and to open our hearts to God in such a way that he will speak to us. My wife has read with tears in her eyes this book, which I heartily commend to you, To the Golden Shore. It's the life of Adoniram Judson. He, too, had been the wild and dissolute son of a congregational minister, a student at Yale. And then he became converted to faith in Jesus Christ. He went out under the Baptist church to go as a missionary to Burma, and the Baptists among you will be happy to hear this. On board the ship he was studying his Greek New Testament and got converted to the Baptist way of baptizing, and when he got where he was going he had to ride home and tell the congregational mission board that he didn't believe like he said he believed when he was there. And then uh, he uh, changed, uh, somehow they worked it out so that he stayed as a missionary. He was arrested and tortured and put in prison. His faith in Jesus Christ was so great that even when he was in prison, and this is reviewed, by the way, in the New York Times, listen to his wife describe seeing him coming out of a prison. She saw Adoniram coming out of the murk, crawling. He had fetters and chains on his hands and his feet. Two days in prison had turned this man, who was the most fastidious man she had ever known into a haggard, unshaven scarecrow. His usually spotless white starched neckcloth was a filthy rag. His neat black broadcloth suit was disheveled and smeared with the fragments of rotten banana peelings. She could scarcely recognize him. She gave him one long, horrified, incredulous look and hid her face in her hands. Mr. Gudger turned his back. He could not look at him. He said that that figure had burned itself into his memory forever. He was tortured and imprisoned, and yet he would not quit preaching the love of Christ which had forgiven him and which had caused him to translate the New Testament into the Burmese language and had caused the king of Burma to say I don't know anything about your God but he must be real. I would give anything if I had one subject in my kingdom who would suffer for me like you have suffered for your God. And God used that man. He buried his wife and children in Burma. But God used him marvelously. Marvelously because he was faithful. Faithful to the healing power of God which had been extended to him. Now back to the house in Capernaum. And back to the thing which I always like to think about, that the crowd's all left and gone home. And this fellow sitting there in his house looking up at the hole in the roof, big hole, big enough to get a six-foot stretcher down through. He said, you know, when I bought that tile, they didn't tell me how to patch it. I don't know whether you patch it from the center or you patch it going up this way. Very expensive. But he said, boy, I'm glad. I'm i so glad Jesus was here today. I'm glad for this hole in the roof. I think he might have wanted to make a skylight out of it and just leave it there to remind him of what the power of God had brought that day in his house. Now, God's power is here. If you have the faith to believe, And he will forgive your wretched sins if you are willing to ask him to forgive you. He has healing power, and you may ask him for healing for your friends, and he honors that kind of faith. He may use doctors and surgeons to help with it, but they too know that they're Mercy comes from God also, but it's up to you. Are you willing to exercise faith and trust and then to act upon it? Are you willing to go out and get your friends and bring them to where they might come to know Jesus? The other night I was very tired. I didn't feel like seeing anyone, but someone had a friend who is not a Christian, and he wanted his friend to know Jesus Christ. And they came to our house and rang the doorbell. He said to me, will you see this man if I bring him by? And I said, yes. And I knew that all the time I was talking to that man, that his friend who had brought him there was just scrunched up in prayer, praying that the Lord would open the heart of the one that had been brought there. Well, I don't know what will happen. We have prayed together. When that man left the door, he said, I wouldn't be surprised if one day I don't come back to Montreat, and you may have me up there giving my testimony in the church in Montreat. I'm praying that that will happen in his heart. Let us bow in prayer. O God, our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the love of Jesus Christ for us. We thank Thee that it occurred in such a strange way that day. and was experienced in such different ways by each person that some resented him and some loved him. Maybe there are some here who felt resentment, but don't feel it now. Will you accept their desire for pardon? We thank you for the owner of that house. We thank you for the four men who brought their friend to Jesus. And when we think of how feeble we are in our witness to other people, Help us to remember that the only thing we may ever do for anyone that will last for eternity is to bring them to Jesus. We thank you that you are able to reach through barriers of crowds and roofs and other things that keep people away, of formality and culture, and that you can reach to the deepest need of our hearts That you can take even shallow, superficial people and deepen them. That you can take each one of us and make us new. And we pray for that to happen. And then we'll bless you because the power of God was present. Some of us need to forgive someone. All of us do, and it's hard. And we pray that you'll make it possible for us because of what Christ did, which was so hard for us on the cross. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and guide, be and abide with us all now and forevermore.